you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you open them, please, to the book of Philippians? Last week, we began a sermon series in this book of joy. I hope that you know the difference between happiness and joy. Happiness comes from the outside in. It's based on circumstance. Circumstances good, you'll be happy. Circumstances bad, not so happy. But joy comes from the inside out. It comes from a, ruining, a reigning, ruling Jesus Christ. It matters not what's going on on the outside as long as Jesus is on the inside. It's called joy. And the book of Philippians is a book of joy. A book of joy. In just a moment, we're going to read Philippians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, verse 9 through 11. The message will be how to pray for others. But before we do that, I want to say something to you. I've been in the ministry as a pastor going on 34 years. Now, I've, quite frankly, I, I really believe I have seen it all. I've heard it all. I've experienced it all. There's nothing new under the sun that can happen on the church landscape that I haven't seen, heard, or experienced. But I must confess, there's something taking place now that takes lunacy to a whole new level. There is a developing trend among some megachurches to sell membership cards to those who attend. Just like you would go to Sam's and buy a membership card or Costco's and buy a membership card, they will sell you a membership card. Now, these cards that they will sell you for membership in their church come in differing amounts based on the benefits, the perks, the luxuries that you so desire. There's a bronze card that you can purchase. And by the way, they give you the card, and it matches the color of the membership. So you get a copper tone card, a bronze card. And what do you get for that? You get the right to park in their church parking lot and sit in their sanctuary for a worship service. That's, that's pretty good, isn't it? A bronze card. You don't have to park it. The drugstore. You don't have to park at Walmart. You can park on their church property. And you don't have to wait out in the foyer. You can come in and actually have a seat in the sanctuary. Just flash that bronze card. But I know some of you are high rollers. You're not going to go with bronze. Why should you? You can afford a silver card. Now, if you get a silver card from this particular church and others like it, you get an upgraded parking spot. Not just guaranteed the right to park, but a reserved parking place. It'll have a number on it that will match the number on your car. And you also get an upgraded seat in the sanctuary. Your seat will actually be padded on the back side and on the back. All for the silver card. But I know some of you 
you've got a lot more money. Not all of us can afford the gold card, but maybe you can. The gold card gives you valet parking. You just pull in the parking lot, flash the gold. And somebody will take your car and park it, and they'll bring it back to you at the end of the service. They'll also escort you to your seat right up front. Wow, everybody looking at you as you walk down the aisle. And not only that, if you have a gold card after the service, you get to meet the pastor. You got access to the pastor. He's a busy man. He ain't got, comp, ain't got time for bronze and silver card people. But if you're a gold card, he's got time. And you can meet the guests that go to the church. You can get their autograph. But maybe, just maybe, you won the sweepstakes. Maybe, just maybe, you, you inherited a lot of money, and you're going to go all the way. You're going to get the platinum card. Now, when you get the platinum card, you get everything I've already mentioned, plus a luxurious private seating area with reclining chairs. The only ones who can go into that area is your family and friends that you let in. There will be a table set up in that area. And on that table there will be sandwiches and pastries and desserts and chips and dips. Coffee and tea and Coca-Cola. I mean, it's a spread for a king. And not only that, if you have the platinum card... You swipe that card every time you come. And you start earning reward points. <laughs> These reward points come by attending, by serving, by giving. There's a lots of ways, and they, they'll give you a sheet with all the different ways you can earn points for your free vacation. Or so you can go to the theater or to the ball games and get tickets. Wow. One of the leaders of a particular church doing this, he said, we give honor to whom honors do. Membership has its privileges, he says with a bright smile. And we bless those who pay to be blessed. Oh, you like that? We bless those who pay to be blessed. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's easy to see why we have so many darkened people today. So many dysfunctional homes, so many dying churches, so many, we live in a declining nation in a demonized world when this kind of nonsense is taking place in the church. As the Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian man who ever lived, sits in a prison, He's not thinking about how to sell church membership cards at Philippi. He's not thinking about how to set up a points reward system for the saints in Philippi. He's not thinking about how to have a worship service that's a three-ring circus and still call it a church. The Apostle Paul, in a prison, 
is thinking about how to pray for a church that he dearly loved and how to pray for a people that he dearly loved. Prayer was on this man of God's mind as we enter into Philippians chapter 1. He's thinking about prayer. Because he understood that in the day in which he lived, prayer was the most important thing. Prayer brings the wisdom and power of God into stuff. And if they needed the wisdom and power of God in their day, how much more do we need it today? And so he begins to talk about prayer. If you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, verse 9 through 11. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, church at Philippi and saints, always in every prayer of mine for you, making all requests for you with joy. Verse 9, and this is what I pray for you, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, that you would be filled with the fruits of righteousness which come from Jesus Christ alone, and that you would bring Him glory and praise. Wow. That's a spiritual man. Because he's praying about things that have an eternal value to them and make an eternal difference. Follow with me, if you would, the five things specifically he prayed for this church that he loved and these saints that he loved. Now remember, he's in prison. Many people believe that he had a Roman guard attached to him at all times, 24-7 a security guard attached to him. Prisons in that day were not country clubs like today. They were dark, they were damp, they were filled with rats and roaches. They were horrible places to be. And yet in the midst of all of this, this man of joy writes. And he tells the church what he's praying them for. Notice number one, he says, I'm praying that you might have unlimited love. Look at verse 9, and this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. When you think of the word love, what do you think about? You know, the Bible has much to say about love. The Bible says love is the greatest virtue. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, the great love chapter in the Bible. The chapter that you often most hear at a wedding. But it's, but it's true for all the time, by the way. It talks about love. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians 13 and wrote the entire book, actually, says faith, hope, and love. These are the three great virtues. But the greatest virtue of all is the virtue of if you can only choose one virtue, if you can only choose to be like the Lord God in one area of your life, he said choose love, because that, 
is the pinnacle of the virtues. The greatest virtue is love. The greatest evidence is love. Jesus said, By this men shall know that you are my disciple, because you what? You love one another. It's the greatest evidence that you have passed from death unto life, that you're born again. If your mind is a headquarters of hate, I can tell you something. You're not saved. He is a God of love. When He comes into us, we will have love. Love is the greatest evidence that you are born again. Love is the greatest virtue. Love is the greatest commandment. Remember when the religious leader came to Jesus and tried to trap Him, tried to trick Him, And he said, Lord, the Bible's filled with commandments. Tell us which commandment's the most important. And Jesus summarized the entire Bible in two sentences. Love the Lord thy God with all of your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and love other people as you love yourself. That's it. If you remember that, you you don't need the rest. Just love God upward. Love your fellow man outward. And when you do that, you have fulfilled the law and you have fulfilled the Scriptures. Love is the greatest virtue. It's the greatest evidence. It's the greatest commandment. The Bible says love is the greatest motivation. Why do you who teach Sunday school teach Sunday school? Because of the love of God. Why does Norman lead a team to Haiti? Because of the love of God. Why am I your pastor and do what I do? Because of the love of God. If I didn't get paid, I'd still do what I'm doing. Because of the love of God. You don't tell the stewardship team that, okay? (laughs) But the love of God. The great Apostle Paul, who went through so much in his life, said, it's the love of Christ that compels me. I want to give up. I want to quit. I'd rather do something else, but I can't. It's the love of God that keeps me going. It motivates me. It moves me. And then love is the greatest gift. When God started passing out gifts, He gave us the greatest gifts. For God so loved the world that He gave His what? His Son. His only beloved begotten Son, whose name is Jesus. And then later He would give us something else that was so valuable to Him. He would not only give us the second member of the Holy Trinity, His Son, He would give us the third member, His Spirit. So you see, love... It's the greatest virtue, it's the greatest evidence, it's the greatest commandment, it's the greatest motivation, it's the greatest gift. Somebody has said, love may not make the world go round, but it sure makes the ride more enjoyable. And when Paul prayed for the church at Philippi, when he prayed for the men and women who claim the name of Jesus in this church, he he prayed that they would abound in this kind of love. Upward love, outward Lord. 
Love for God, love for their fellow man. If you have a King James Bible in verse 9, you see the word abound. That's the kind of love he prayed that they would have. He prayed they would have abounding love, unlimited love. That word abound is an interesting word. It's a word associated with water. It would picture a man holding a cup in his hand, and he's got a trembling hand, and the water in the cup is doing what? It's splashing out. It would picture a river, a river that's being, that's rising over its banks. It's flooding. It would picture a dam holding back water, but the water's rising and rising and rising and soon will crest and go over the top of the dam. Paul is saying, when I think of you, church at Philippi, when I think of you saints who make up the church, I pray to God that you would have that kind of love. A love that splatters out of your cup. A love that overflows the banks of your river. A, a love that, that crests over the dam of your life. A love that just keeps abounding. It keeps increasing. It keeps flowing. A love that was like what Jesus experienced when he suffered on the cross. And he looked at his tormentors who put him there. And he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. A love that's greater than suffering. But also a love that's greater than prejudice. All of us have prejudices. What keeps those prejudices in check? It's the love of God. Peter was a very prejudiced man. He was a Jewish man who was very prejudiced against the Gentiles. And yet when he met Jesus, through a work of the Spirit of God, through the modeling of the Son of God, Peter began to deal with his prejudice. And he set his prejudice aside because he loved. Zacchaeus was a greedy little man. He was a tax collector. He skimmed off the top. Yet when he met Christ, this greedy little man gave up his greed because he loved people and he gave it all back. Ever heard of a tax man giving you your money back? Don't hold your breath. This is what we're talking about. A love that's greater than suffering. A love that's greater than prejudice. A love that's greater than greed. In 1994, my first year as your pastor, we brought a man called Zeb Osborne to Miles Road Baptist Church. Zeb was labeled the meanest man in the South Carolina penal system. He was in the same cell block that Pee Wee Gaskins was in. And Pee Wee Gaskins did not fear anybody but Zeb Osborne. Zeb Osborne was labeled the meanest man in the South Carolina penal system. He was on death row awaiting execution when somebody got him a track. And that mean man read about Jesus, gave his life to Jesus, was miraculously saved. Only man in South Carolina history to ever be paroled off death row. And he came here. Now I kept him in front of me just in case he backslid. <laughs> but 
God, what changed him? When he came here, he was humble, he was meek. You would never know looking at him, he was a killer. The love of Christ. The same love that compelled a young Marine in Vietnam to fall on a hand grenade and be blown to bits so he could save his two comrades of a different race who could not save themselves. Ralph Johnson, whom our VA hospital in Charleston is rightly named for. That's the kind of love Paul prayed for that church to have. A love that was greater than suffering and prejudice and greed and violence, even life itself. An abounding love. But secondly, if you notice in your Bible, verse 10, he prayed that they would have a deep discernment. A deep discernment. Look at verse 10. That you may approve things that are excellent. That word approve is an interesting word. It means the ability, listen carefully, the ability to know best from better. Or best from good. It's not talking about the ability to know right from wrong good from bad. That's pretty easy for most of us. Paul prayed that their discernment would be greater than that. It would be the ability to know the best from the better, the best from the good. When all three choices before you are good choices, how to know which one is the best choice? The ability to know what is pure gold and what is polluted gold. The ability to know what is a diamond and what is zirconium. The ability to know what is a real $100 bill versus a counterfeit $100 bill. That's his prayer. How to know greatness from averageness. Eternal things from earthly things. Life-changing, Christ-advancing things from status quo things. That's what he's talking about in Ephesians 5, verse 15 and 16, when he says, See then that you walk circumspectedly. Walk with wisdom and discernment. Don't be a fool, but be wise, so you can redeem the time. Once again, do you know the difference between best and good? And would you make the choice for best over good if you had a choice? Do you know the difference between best and better? And would you decide upon best instead of better? Many years ago, we had a family in our church who had a son who was pretty good at baseball. He had some college potential, I believe, though he had some years to go. And maybe even could have played professional baseball. He was pretty good. And his dad wanted him to be a college player at a particular university and wanted him to play at the big leagues. So his dad made a choice. In order for him, his son, to advance at the rate he wanted him to advance, 
His son is going to have to play baseball on Wednesday night. Sacrifice the Awana program, the best ministry in America for bringing boys and girls to Jesus and teaching them the Word of God. So he withdrew his son from the Awana program so he could focus on Wednesday night baseball. Not too long after that, he chose to take his son out of church so his son could play travel ball. So his son could travel across the southeast. So his son could play on Saturday and Sunday games. Refine his skills. Even though he would miss church. Even though he no longer would be in the Awana program. That's okay. If it gets his son to college and gets him to the pro level. Well, long story short. His son got to neither. His son got in some trouble. Never had an opportunity to go to college. Colleges don't want troublemakers. And his hopes of a pro career never materialized. And what's even more sadder and tragic is that young man has no interest in the church anymore. Thanks to his father, who's made baseball more important than church, more importantly than the Lord Jesus. You see, this dad didn't have any discernment. There's nothing wrong with baseball. I'm not knocking baseball. But when baseball is a choice over an Awana program, when baseball is a choice over church, when baseball becomes a god over the Lord Jesus Christ, it is a bad deal. And I think sometimes we make choices that are not necessarily bad. They're good, maybe. They're better, maybe. But they're not the best. And we forfeit so many things that God wanted us to have and God wanted us to do because of our own short-sightedness. Foolishness, as the Bible calls it. And even if that young man would have got to the pros, I wonder if him and his father remembered the words of Jesus. What would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lost his own soul? Paul prayed for the church at Philippi. He said, I pray that they would have love, an ever-abounding love for God and each other. I pray for my, the church and the saints at Philippi that, Lord, you give them a discernment. Help them to see things that are great versus things that are average. Help them to see the best over the good. Thirdly, he prays for their sweet serenity, uh, sincerity. Look at verse 10. That you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. The word sincere means to pass the test when the sun is shining. That's what that word means. To pass the test when the sun, S-U-N, is shining. You say, Pastor, I don't make any sense. Well, let me explain to you why it does make sense. In that day, they had some crooked pottery makers. 
Now, I know you don't know any today. They, they come by other names. But in that day, selling pottery was big business. And crooked pottery makers, if they found a crack in the pottery or a broken piece of pottery, they would not throw it away and they would not discount it. What they would do is take the broken piece and with the substance that was kind of waxy and gluey, they would put the piece back in place. They would glue it back in place. And then they would lightly color it with some different color variations so somebody who bought it couldn't see it. And they would always have the lights in their shop low. So when you went into a pottery shop, particularly one that was illegitimate, they would have darkness around you. You'd pick up the piece of pottery. You couldn't see where the wax and glue held the broken thing together and how they camouflaged it a little bit with color. Now, customers are pretty smart. Can't fool them all the time. People finally caught on that if I'm going to buy a piece of pottery, I'm not going to look at it in the dark. What am I going to do? Go outside. Hold it up to the sun. And in the sunlight, guess what you can see? You can see the coloration. You can see the flaws. You can see the brokenness. You can see the wax and glue that holds it all together. What he's praying for with the church at Philippi is that one day when the sun, S-O-N, holds you and I up, will we be genuine? Will we be real? Will we be diamonds? Will we be gold? Or will we be false, phonies? Fool's gold. Zirconium. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm praying that you will have no hypocrisy. I'm praying that you will not lead a double life. I'm praying that you're not a fake or a forgery. I'm praying that you are the real deal. So when the sun shines on you, it will show that. Let me ask you a question. Is there another way to see that without Jesus having to show it to us? If I had Peter and Judas Iscariot standing, my left and my right, respectively, and I asked you, without you knowing anything about them, which one's the phony one, how do you think you'd figure it out? You wouldn't. You wouldn't. Now, Peter denied Jesus three times, didn't he? Lied about knowing Jesus three times. Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus, led to his crucifixion. They both made a mess of their lives at different points, but how would you know which is which? How would you know? Well, there's three ways that you can put a test on somebody. And hopefully, if they're smart and they don't pass these tests, they'll do something before the supreme test, which is the light of the sun. The first is the time test. Do they pass the test of time? 
I hope you're listening to me. It's not how fast you come out of the blocks. It's where you finish crossing the finish line. I think all of us who are pastors, and we have some pastors here today, will tell you we've seen people who start out like racehorses. I mean, they're at every church, every service. Morning, evening, Wednesday night. They applaud. They're go-to-it guys. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. They want to do this. They want to do that. They sign up for this. They sign up for that. They're involved in this. They're involved in that. I mean, I tell you what, they're 900 miles an hour. They're like secretariat coming out of the gate. And then six months later, a year later, you can't find them. Cannot find them. They just disappeared. They could not pass the test of time. John said in his epistle, there were some who started with Jesus, but they didn't finish with him. The test that somebody is the real deal, sincere, can pass the test of the sunlight one day, is that they stay with it. A faith that falters before the finish was fatally flawed from the first. I don't care how fast you come out of the blocks, I care if you finish the finish line. There's also the persecution test. When the persecution comes, will you stay with Jesus or will you jump off the Jesus ship like a rat in a storm? Persecution has a way of sifting out the wheat from the tares. Men will live for a lie, but they're not going to die for a lie. Men will live for something that they can make up, but they're not going to die for it. Would you die for Christ? And then there's the lifestyle test. Is your lifestyle changed by claiming to be a Christian? I didn't say perfect. Is it changed? If your salvation hasn't changed you, you need to change your salvation. When Jesus comes into your life, He'll change your mind, He'll change your mouth, He'll change your mannerisms, He'll change your life. That's called sanctification. I know it's a Pentecostal word, but we Baptists can use it too. Fourthly, this is Paul's prayer. What an amazing prayer for the church. I don't know that I would have prayed this. How about you? He prays for unlimited love. He prays for a deep discernment. He prays for sweet sincerity. Then notice in verse 11, he prays that they be filled with fruitfulness. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by who? Which are by who? Say it. Jesus Christ. Fruitfulness comes from Christ. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you're connected to me, you will produce fruit. If you're not connected to me, the implication is you will not produce fruit. 
So where does the fruitfulness come? It comes from Jesus. Having a personal relationship with Him. A connection, if you will. And the fruit is what makes us like Him. Paul prayed, if they know the Lord, if they're connected to the Lord, may they show the Lord, as Keith said earlier. May they show Him. You say, Pastor, how do you show the Lord? You show the Lord through the fruit of the fruitfulness. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 is a picture of Christ, but it's also a picture of us. If we be connected to Him. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. What should a well-dressed Christian be wearing? <laughs> love. Joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. If you're the real deal, you will have this in your life. You may not be perfect in having it. Nobody is. But it'll be there. When Lawrence of Arabia went to London, he left the deserts of the Middle East and traveled to London, England. He took with him several nomadic shepherds. These shepherds had never been out of the hillside, basically, that they were born and raised in and tended their livestock at. They were uneducated shepherds. They were uncultured. They were uncitied, if that's a word we'll be with today. And they didn't know what to do in the big city. So Lawrence of Arabia said, well... When you get in London, just do what I do. If I say something, you say it. If I do something, you do it. Just act like me. So when he said, how are you doing? How are you doing? How are you doing? How are you doing? When he shook hands, the other three shook hands. When he drank, they drank. When they put a cup down, they put their cup down. They were a marriage a mirror image of Him. Listen, that's what Paul is praying for here. He's saying, I pray that you, church, are a mirror image of Christ. That you bear His fruitfulness. You bear His fruit. I, that's what I want you to be. When people look at you, when they listen to you or me, do they see Christ? They should. And then lastly, his fifth thing. Now this is a praying man. He prays for their unlimited love, their deep discernment, their sweet sincerity, that they be filled with fruitfulness. And lastly, as I close, that they give glory to God. That they give glory to God. And everything they do as a church, and everything they do as individuals, the glory goes upward. Not outward, not inward, it goes upward. The psalmist said, not unto me, not unto me, O Lord, but to you may be the glory. Jonathan Bach, a classical composer of yesteryear, said something remarkable about a man who wrote some of the greatest music of all time. He said, all music, all music, not just my music, but all music, should have as its aim and purpose 
to bring glory to God. All music, aim and purpose of that music is to bring glory to God. May I take that a step further? Everything we say, bring glory to God. Everything we do, bring glory to God. Wow. Unlimited love that's growing and showing. Deep discernment that is best and eternal. Sweet sincerity that is real and genuine, filled with fruitfulness that makes us like Jesus and giving glory to God. Only to the King will I give my praises. That's His prayer for His church. That's my prayer for our church. That was His prayer for the saints of that day. It's my prayer for the saints of this day. Heads are bowed and eyes are bowed.